0: Hey, everyone, before we get to today's episode, I wanted to share what I think is a pretty exciting announcement. We are opening up our Rival AMP community. So some of you listening have been part of AMP from the beginning of the company. It has been our small, very small friends and family community around Rival where we post updates, ask for feedback kind of share what's going on in the business but actually we think there's a lot more potential as we've grown as our community has grown as we've met more of you to actually build and scale a proper community within rival amp so what rival amp is going to be is it's going to be a community for challenger marketers on whatsapp we're going to share ideas and observations from the challenger marketing world that we see and ask everyone to contribute to that share about challenger brands marketing news industry events, job opportunities, ask for feedback and input, use each other as a sounding board. We think it's going to be really great. So if you are interested in joining and are not already a member, please either reach out to me if you know me or go on over to our website, wearrival.com, and you can apply from there. This is free, but we do want to make sure that we're adding people that are really interested and can really add value. That's it. On to the episode.
1: I'm a huge fan of creativity and i always believed in creativity. But let's just be frank, uh, Eric. Um, Creativity is dead. An advertising agency selling creativity is dead. And there's very few of them left because they've become prostitutes. They have sold out through data, but quite often were blurry data for the sake of pleasing a client so they could wash their hands internally and justify a direction without being fired. That's quite often what happens frankly speaking, because the campaigns are not working better than they did back then. In fact, they're working worse. And maybe we have a lot of data showing they work better, but I haven't seen any mind-blowing campaign.
0: I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rule book from scratch for the world of today. is a very special episode. If you're listening to this you're in marketing and if you're in marketing, you know and probably clicked on this because you know the name Martin Lindstrom. Martin, if you haven't or if you need a refresher, he's a Danish author, branding expert and speaker. He's the founder and chairman of the Lindstrom Group. Most of you probably know him for the books that he's written. Many of them have become New York Times bestsellers and actually he was listed As one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. So I feel very lucky to have had the chance to talk to him and have him on Scratch. I mean, honestly, the whole episode is a highlight. You know, this is a guy that is very much um, the godfather of a lot of modern marketing. And he talks a lot about how he and, of course, others have helped to bring science into the world of marketing. He coined the term neural marketing, small data, clicks and mortar there's so much in his experience to use from. What I particularly like about it is not just what he talks about, which, of course, you can get the principles and the philosophies through his books and some of the stuff that he's published. But he talks about real world examples of clients that he's working with now or who has he has worked with recently and how he's actually implementing these principles. So I think there's a ton of to learn from in here about cultural transformation and change within organizations, about the balance of art and science within marketing, and about why the role of the CMO isn't respected in organizations and how to change that if you are a marketer. So I'm going to leave it there. I know you're going to love this episode. Martin Lindstrom, everybody. Martin, thank you so much for making the time to join me today. How are you doing? I'm excellent. And you, Eric? love it love the enthusiasm i'm doing well it's uh it's kind of getting hot here in london which i never like but broadly speaking can't complain and i am really looking forward to this conversation um you know we had our prep call and there's so much that i want to talk about i feel like you know i'd do a six-hour podcast with you if i could i'm sure most people in the world of marketing would
1: you are super kind making me blush already one minute into the conversation should we just stop here it's much easier
0: With the quality of your camera, people can actually see you blushing. I I like it. You got the full studio setup, clearly a pro. But listen, Martin, before we get into the questions, I want to start with the story. So it was 2010. I had just gotten into the world of marketing. I had had a job for about a year at Forbes.com. And they literally dropped me in, brought me in to figure out this social media thing in 2009, literally what the conversation was didn't like the corporate world. And so I left and I went to work for Gary Vaynerchuk and what became VaynerMedia. A couple of years in, this is now 2010, I took my first vacation and my first two-week vacation, which as an American, and at that time, somebody working at Vayner was a very, very big deal. I went to visit my sister who at the time lived in Yangon, Myanmar. She was working for a microfinance nonprofit. And so I visited her for two weeks, and the office where she worked had a stack of business books. And I took them all with me to the beach where we went for a week and a half. And I read them. And one of the books was biology. And that is where I first came across you sitting on a beach in Myanmar. And then, of course, that led me down a rabbit hole, not just of everything that you've written, but also just the entire world of marketing science, as I call it, in which, of course, you are a pioneer. So I just wanted to put that out there because. Uh, I thought it was a I thought it was a funny story now having you on the podcast thirteen years later. Absolutely. Well I'm very honored by
1: sitting on a bookshelf somewhere in Myanmar. Except the fact that you take the book away now. So now I'm not
0: represented in Myanmar in a way. I brought it back. I brought it back. I took it from the office to the beach and then I put it back in the office before I left. So, Martin. I've got a bunch of questions to go through, a bunch of topics that I'm really excited to get your perspective on. The question that we ask every guest when we start is to name a challenger brand that they are passionate about. But actually for you, and given who you are and what you do, I want to start with a different question, which is how would you define the term challenger brand?
1: Well, challenger brand for me is a brand which is typically uh, breaking everything around it. It's breaking the audience. It's breaking the category. It's breaking the conventional way of getting to the market. And it's perhaps even breaking the way the product or the service works. So it really is not going the conventional way. Um, And there's very few of them out there, I have to say, because most companies and most people running the companies are petrified of going the opposite way because they're afraid of losing what they already have. Very few challenging brand or challenger brands was appearing. I think from the big corporations to the leaders, from the startups was have nothing to lose and everything to gain.
0: And how do you feel about the incumbent launching a challenger? So the model of innovation groups within large organizations.
1: Well, in theory, it works well. And in reality it's very rarely the way to go forward. I mean I mean a good example is is uh, Walmart. Walmart started their dot com initiative internally, failed. The second thing they started up was something on the ads, which were kind of a spin-off, kind of not, didn't work. It was first the third time they succeeded when they acquired a business and did not integrate it, but actually kept it uh, in parallel with the existing core business. Um Here's the issue a lot of people in theory would like to change the, the, the bigger corporate setup, what I call the immune system. But the immune system is quite often so strong because that brand or that company had been in existence for many years. And given that, they fine-tuned what they're doing to an extraordinary degree and created a lot of protection around it so it's not being jeopardized with. And suddenly you have this new disruptor coming into the game and challenging the core and in not even in 9 out of 10 but in 99 out of 100 I would claim they fail so the best way of getting around that is actually to make it succeed in parallel and then perhaps later on make the big company be swallowed up by the new startup Um, but you can't do it the opposite way at least to to my knowledge
0: yeah I mean that's one of the things that we see because we do a lot of work with you know, challengers to help them scale, but also incumbents that are trying to innovate. And sometimes that is taking a different approach to the core business or the master brand or a brand within the business. But oftentimes it is, particularly in the world of financial services, launching something new as a separate thing. And it really only works. I know we're going to talk a lot about culture, which is a big thing for you and I think drives everything. Um, But it only works because you do it independently and you let it operate on its own. And yet... The very reason that you start it, which is to help it scale, typically, if it is successful in those rare cases, then it gets brought back into the big organization and gets layered down and weighted down.
1: While swallowing up the big organization, I mean, that case scenario also exists, and quite often that is the right one because then you have made a dramatic transformation of the existence, of the existing business. I mean, here's the issue. I'll I'll give you an example. So two young kids are sitting in a dorm room, smoking weeds and they're off their heads. They shoot a photo of each other, post it online. The day after, hell breaks loose. Mom and dad is furious. And they say to each other, I wish we could retract this photo. And that became the start of Snapchat, today's $50 billion company. What happened was that they felt what the consumer were feeling because they were the consumer. They had empathy, the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and feel what that person is feeling. Same with Travis from Uber. He couldn't get a taxi in Paris, freaked out, and that was really the creation of Uber. What happens over time, though, is that as a company grows older, the immune system is starting to take over. The immune system is a defense mechanism for teens. It is a way to protect what you already have, that's where legal is brought in, compliance is brought in, rules and regulations are introduced. It's also where the founders typically are leaving. So that sense of empathy was originally, was founding the company. It's slowly disappearing. It's almost like you put a freeze button on everything, and they're not obtaining any emotions anymore. They're just kind of assuming the consumers in the status quo. It's, it's acting the same way as they did originally when they founded that company. Um, and that's where you have the problem. So you could say, and this is what's so interesting, there's a direct collision between uh, common sense and empathy. Common sense is to see things from a common man's point of view. So the, the more you have empathy in an organization, the more common sense you have, the more logic you have. That's where a lot of things are challenging the standard, the norm, because they're basically saying it doesn't make sense. The bigger you grow, the less empathy, the less Common sense which is now translated into nonsense instead, and that's the reason why a large organizations are struggling because nonsense now is running the show with no empathy and they see the world from inside out rather than outside in and that's really the conflict you have between challenging brands and commercial brands that um they are two there are two different points of view
0: in the in the end of the day right? Is it overly simplistic to say? that one is more customer-centric and one is not, or one is more product or business-centric? Because one of the things that I... I I
1: think so. Yeah.
0: I think you could... No, I don't think it's
1: simplistic. I think it's probably true. Of course, there's always... Right. No, adjustments to that black and white picture you're painting there. But, you know, I work with the majority of different categories around the world. And increasingly, I'll give you an example from a very large supermarket chain... Which, when we started to do consumer insights, we we spoke to all the store managers across a region, and um, one day, one of the store managers we interviewed said to me, "Well, I'm representing what's called a visitor store." I said, "What is a visitor store?" A visitor store is a store which is approved by senior management and headquarters that one from headquarters can visit that store. I said, "So what happens if you're visiting other stores? You can't." They said, well, so how is the situation in that visitor store? They said, well, we're staff, we keep it extra clean, and we're running the latest and greatest concept. We said, what about those stores where you have the real amount of staff and where it's just reflected in the way it's cleaned and everything, but they never see it. So the immune system is so strong that they actually create almost like a narrative around themselves to reinforce that what they're doing is right. That's where you're losing the side of the
0: customer. So I want to take a step back for a second. And I think a lot of people, well, probably everybody listening knows the name, probably has read some of your books, has come across, whether they know it or not, an impact that you have had on their world as a marketer. But how would you actually describe what you do right now? Well,
1: I began my life looking into branding when I was the age of 12. And that was when I started to work with Lego. It's a long story. But in the end of the day, I I got a job inside Lego, and I started to see the world from a customer point of view because I was the customer, and that was one of the reasons why Lego, I guess, back then employed me. I always wanted to be a sort of a primary branding expert in the world, but you can't be a primary branding expert (laughs) if you don't have credibility, and I didn't have that, and I didn't have any experience as well. So I realized this is a little bit like a Venn diagram. If you put branding in the middle and you put sort of circles around of the edge of that circle in the middle, uh, then you build up kind of a flower, so to speak. And each of those areas is what i focused on. I focused first on saying, well, what is the future of branding going to look like? That was in 1994. And not sure if you were around then, but if you were, uh, you will know that's the year the World Wide Web was invented. So I wrote the first book in the world about how to build brands online. Then we, I developed a term called clicks and mortar. So I took the orphan and online and merged it together. And then I started to say, well, that's going to impact the whole generation. So I wrote a book called Brand Child. which was all about how to see this from a kid's point of view. One of the things we discovered there was that 56% of all new car purchases are decided by kids at home. Kids at the age of 15 years of age. This is pretty crazy. In in that book, I also uh, invented a couple of terms. One of them was texting. And we also predicted the idea of a Facebook arriving, which happened two years later when I lost another book called Brand Sense. That's where I said, well, brands can't be two-dimensionally, meaning sight and sound. It has to be smell and touch and taste as well, so all five senses. And the more we record on five tracks, the more you remember So we did a huge study with Milford Brown and that and really proved the point. At that stage, I realized, Tina, it's difficult to say what is your emotions when you smell a smell. Do you become more loyal to Coca-Cola? So that's where I introduced another term called neuromarketing. That's what you met in 2010. And and that was really the whole idea about that 85% of what we do every day is subconscious. Then it led to ethics. Then it led to... Uh, uh, corporate politics because I realized when you want to introduce huge concepts, great ideas, powerful brands, the marketing department doesn't have a lot of power. So you need to understand the immune system in the organization, the culture, and get the culture with you to build a powerful brand. So, in the end of the day, what I'm doing is to build brands through culture transformation where I would say most people probably focus on the branding and communication side, I try to look at it from a holistic point of view because it takes two to tango and uh, branding is only one of the two
0: dancers. So how do you overcome, because we talk and think a lot about culture and what we do, you know, we build some tech, but really what we're focused on is delivering strategy. But at the end of the day, the only strategy that matters is the one that gets executed that the customer sees and the translation of strategy to execution is through culture. It has to be. It's the people that do it. So when you talk about this idea of the immune system within the organization that's adverse to change, um, changing culture, cultural transformation, I think, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of really smart people that have contributed to the thinking around it, and it gets talked about a lot. But still, especially with big old organizations, you come across a lot that have not made much progress on it and are really stuck by it. So very tactically, for people who agree with you at this level, at the high level of, yes, culture is a priority, we need to fight the immune system within the organization, what can they actually do to change things? Particularly, and I know we're going to talk about this, the role of marketing within the organization not having as much power. What can a marketer do to fight that and actually drive cultural transformation on a day-to-day basis?
1: I think the most important thing you have to realize that if you stay within your marketing department, you're never going to evolve. Marketing and powerful branding is all about every touch point. As I tend to say, branding is every touch point your customer come in contact with over the entire span of your company's existence. And that means that you need to engage other people in the organization. You need to talk to people in the call center. You need to talk to people in legal, compliance, operations, HR. And what I typically tend to do is to say, let's invite them on board into sessions where we do cross-functional activities and where we solve one small issue within the space they can handle where they have a mandate. You do that by changing the perspective. So let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, one of the largest uh, respiratory disease companies in the world reached out to us. And, uh, you know, that's the inhalers when you have asthma. And they said, listen, we want to be customer focused. And I say, fantastic. Uh, when did you last visit your patients? And the answer was, never. Now, this company has been around for nearly 100 years They've never spoken to the patients. So that's kind of disturbing. Compliance was the, the excuse, which were not true. So we started to visit patients across the world. And I end up in a home of a 28-year-old lady. She had asthma her entire life. And I asked her, how did it feel like to have asthma as a child? And she starts to cry. And she tells me this touching story about how she was bullied in school. She was told she was a disgrace for human mankind. That's her words, not mine. She was ditched from parties. And I said to her, listen, it feels like you've just gained a lot of confidence since. What happened? And she pulls out a straw from a handbag, literally, and she says, this is my magic straw. Whenever I meet new people, new colleagues, and new friends or acquaintance, I always ask them to take this straw in their mouth, hold themselves through the nose, and breathe through the straw for one minute. And when you do that, you can, you can feel how it is to have asthma. So I took that idea and I shared it with the board. And I had everyone at the board level breathe through the straw. And I'll never forget it because one guy spit out the straw after half a minute and said, this is the most ridiculous thing i ever tried in my life. Who can possibly live like this? And I said to him, this is how your customer lives every minute of their entire life. This is how they feel. And they're paying you salary. And if you could hear a penny drop on the floor, you certainly would have heard it. Now, that in return meant... That when we are now employing new people in this company, they receive a straw in the mail to breathe through the store to feel what other employees are feeling. They uh, do R&D around it to feel the perspective of a customer. And yes, marketing is also changing their perspective. But it sort of became a con- company-wide initiative, very simple, simple to implement, simple to understand, using the power of empathy. And that's really the key coming back to Snapchat. If you are able to, through marketing, to infuse a sense of empathy through the organization, people mostly will start to install common sense because suddenly we have one thing in common. That's the customer is not some bureaucracy inside those walls which are occupying perhaps 65 or 75% of our time.
0: So what is it that leads, organi- you know, this idea of the immune system, I, I get it, and I think it's a really interesting metaphor, but these people running these big organizations, like they're not dumb. They're probably some of the smartest business minds out there. And everybody talks about being more customer centric, even having empathy for the customer. Although I think that's a that's a newer thing. But how do they get there? And I guess um, you know one of the things I'll throw out to you is the term technical debt. I think the same concept applies in every area. So we talk about marketing debt for big organizations. And I think cultural debt, maybe that's part of it as well. It's not that from one day to the other, they had empathy for the customer because at the beginning, every company is a startup. Every company is customer centric. In order to disrupt a category to build a business, you have to be focused on solving a customer need in a differentiated way. But is it just that over time, layers and layers, weeks and weeks of nudges in the other direction of more more to protect more being more risk averse, being more focused on short-term returns. Like, is that how these companies get there? And they just need someone to come in and shake them out of it and shift their perspective?
1: Partly, I think there's multiple factors. Building on what you said, one factor for sure is the short-term focus. I'll give you an example. Um, a a client of ours, Maersk, which is the largest shipping company in the world, that sit around on around 25 percent of all shipping in the world. Reached out to us and asked us to make the organisation more culture focused and and, and empower the brand. We went to China. I was sitting in a call centre with 3,000 call centre staff, and this call centre was allocated to handle customer complaints. So as I was listening in using interpretation, I realised that whenever people called the call centre, they um, they were tagging or ticking a box, and categorizing it as force majeure. Now, you and I know force majeure is COVID-19 or an earthquake. It's not every single one of those thousands of complaints every day. So I went back to them and said, how come? And they told me that if you tick that box, you only have to fill out one form, but if you don't tick it, you have to fill out four forms. (coughs) And this call center was measured that KPI was on time, not on customer satisfaction, which is kind of ironic because... If you categorize things as force majeure, it won't be covered by the insurance. So you actually have directly unhappy customers in the end of the day. What I realized was that through history, Wall Street have had a profound impact on removing companies from from reality. Meaning that in the old days, you would go from destination A to B. You had two KPIs: earning money and happy customers. And then you would break down those small. That arrow was so long arrow to smaller arrows. And each of these errors would be sub KPIs. That would be a division, whatever, because the street wanted to have the quarterly announcement earnings off. They wanted to have some announcements. So you could only do that by talking to various division heads and had them share what they thought they, the revenue would be, right? And um, so suddenly these KPIs would be individual, but the arrows would be pointing in the same direction. Over time, as time went by and more waters passing under the bridge, these more arrows would go in each of the different directions, it would be their little ecosystem which will take control because they had their own agenda. They had different KPIs, certainly, different areas of interest. And that silver lining, originally kind of defining the, the position of that arrow, will disappear to all sorts of different arrows. And this is probably the essence of it that is, that it becomes a self-serving agenda, which is put into progress in the organization when everyone has different KPIs or too many KPIs. And so those personal agendas is what is disturbing the the bigger good, the, the, the overall purpose of the organization. And that's the reason why when organizations are losing their purpose, <laughs> like Kraft Heinz, right?, as an example, an organisation was clearly is losing the purpose right now, and is struggling a great deal, all sorts of different ways, because it's ran by partly a, 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 a private equity type of company. And then what happens is that people are more running around doing cost cutting or saving their own job, whereas if you have an organisation like Patagonia where the purpose is extraordinarily clear, then while it's very clear everyone is working in the same direction, even the owner is not taking money out. Well. Then I know when I'm joining that company, I'm here for the greater good. And and that is the reason why it's so important to wave purpose into organizations today and not just put it on the wall as a plot, but actually to make people live it and believe in it and, and make people thrive on it. And if you don't have that, that silver lining will collapse. The KPIs will be all over the place and the immune system will take control.
0: How do you define marketing?
1: Well, in the end of the day, marketing is to, to ensure that you persuade someone around you to do something which is in your own interest. That's what it is. But yeah. I think marketing has many multiple dimensions right now. And I also do think there's so many KPIs attached to that term through different channels that we kind of sometimes lose focus on what marketing is and how to measure it.
0: I ask because, you know, I was smiling as you were telling that story because... It's just really cool. Like, it's cool, those types of challenges that you're solving, because I was thinking back, and I know I told the story at the beginning of kind of the early stages of my career and coming across your book, but I didn't study marketing in school. I had no ambition of becoming a marketer. And to be honest, spending 10 years in advertising agencies, I felt a little bit out of place because I don't really love advertising, but I love marketing. And I define it very similar to how you do, telling a story to change perception and behavior to drive business results. And that idea of whether it's external or I get really excited about internal because, like I said before, we do a lot of work with challengers and we do a lot of work with incumbents. And if you take the expression of growth within a category as a race between challengers getting scale and incumbents getting innovation, the idea of how to deliver broadly innovation or transformation at scale is so fascinating to me. And the people level of that, which is really where it all needs to start and end is the um, the hardest and the most important challenge, and that's I know you described what you do, but just hearing these examples and these stories, it's it's cool that you get to do that every day.
1: Well, I'm I'm blessed, and do you know what? Um, I I bumped into a a client of ours, which is Lowe's in the United States, and um, that company was close to bankruptcy when we started to work with them some eleven twelve years ago, and this. This guy comes up to me as I'm visiting one of the stores, and he hocks me, and I never met the guy before, and I <laughs> say <said> to him, <laughs> "What's going on?" And he tells me that he had three generations from his family working in in that store, and they were now in a job, and I saved their lives. When you experience those stories, as you say yourself, it's not advertising, it's not even marketing. It's a purpose we are infusing into organizations to make a change. I mean, back to Musk as an example, um, one of the thoughts we toyed around with was to clean the sea. So two of these big ships, the largest in the world, were converted into rumba-type of devices running around the world on the sea and basically clean the sea like a rumba, just as... You would do on the floor, you just do it in water instead, and they suddenly became the largest vacuum cleaner of crap in the sea. It suddenly it's not selling stuff, it's doing something for the greater good. And yes, Merck's share price went up 300% as a consequence of, of the work, but it, it was not that what made me proud. What made me proud was we could align and uh, no, in this case, 88,000 staff to do something with the greater good and actually be proud of what they're doing every day. And I think that's what we have to put into equation as we do our work. It can't just be to sell more shampoo. I mean, I've sold my fair share of shampoos, but I haven't changed organizations and lives enough for me to say I'm done deal.
0: Do you do any work in or have you ever thought about personally getting into politics? Because I think there's so many similarities. It's just the objective is slightly different. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how you separate those buckets in your world.
1: Yeah, so we've been approached by a ton of presidents and prime ministers around the world to work for them. And uh, we generally said, said no. Um, we also uh, work a lot with country branding. So sort of developing larger countries and and adjusting their brand, um, but politics is is difficult because politics is swaying as the wind is blowing, and unless that person you're dealing with really have a high degree of ethics, quite often you'll be caught by in a dilemma where you suddenly are selling sugar for the sake of selling sugar rather than actually solving a purpose when you're halfway down the track and just about to win. And I have to say that the more I'm following that space, it's very clear that you today hardly, I think, can survive and win a political game without being nasty and negative and abusing people around you. Because that is how the algorithms online are designed. So even though a lot of people may have good intentions, that quite often when they go into the other into that machine, end up being pretty nasty at the end of the day. So I sort of stayed away from that space, I have to say.
0: So there's two other topics that I want to get your thoughts on. Hopefully we have time to get there. The first is you are obviously very well known for bringing science into marketing. You you coined a bunch of the terms, neuromarketing, small data, et cetera. One of the things that I believe and say is I think good marketing is a balance between art and science. So I'd just be curious as I understand it, but correct me if I'm wrong, you're a little bit more focused on bringing the science into the world of marketing. Do you think that it is both? And how do you distinguish between the two?
1: I, I actually believe it's both. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the way you could create a differentiation between those two dimensions is to use small data versus big data. So big data, really, in the end of the day, would be kind of science, a format, form of it, you could say. A small data would be, what are called correlations or causations, the reason why. So you need to start with a causation first, the small data, the deeper insight, the hypothesis, and then you can verify it through correlations. Sadly, a lot of marketeers and people in general are starting with the big data first, and then they're drawing some unusual conclusions out of that, not knowing that that data is highly screwed. I mean... A good example was many, many years ago when when Google uh, were the first to be able to predict the flu outbreak uh, two or four days before it would happen. And everyone loved it, except that two years later, the Center for Disease Control concluded that Google were uh, completely wrong. In fact, the numbers were twice of what they should have been. What Google did, they cared about the correlation rather than causation, where you have to start Talk about the causation first, and then follow that by the correlation. You could say, in many ways, what Google did was to claim that the more umbrellas you sell, the more it rains. Um, and I think a lot of marketers are doing that, particularly with the numbers we are obtaining today. That we are we have a tendency to believe these numbers because they're so big, and so you know you just can't you can't navigate it because it's just overwhelming for us. But think about it. Every single election I know of in the United States were off. <laughs> like, at least the predictions of it. I mean, no one predicted that Trump will win, right? Um, and I think, I think what's interesting is we still lean up against correlation and big data. So I fundamentally believe that it starts with the art first, which is the small data. Then you can use science, whether science is big data, mining of data, artificial intelligence, or if it is neuroscience and and stuff in the science world
0: and what do you think obviously there's a big part of the industry especially in the advertising world that is driven by and really worships creativity coming up with something that they would probably argue the data doesn't tell you maybe it gives you the insight and the direction but it doesn't give you the idea and then of course you can weave in to hear the whole conversation about ai and how it's never going to replace creative directors and all that stuff But, you know, the other thing, of course, well-known quote of, if I asked people what I wanted, the Henry Ford thing, it would have been a faster horse, not a car. Well, how do you think about the space for and the need for creativity? And I'd say intuition. And just the other thing I'd say on that, and you're obviously much more educated on this than I, but I feel like that's still data. We just don't understand how it works yet. Um, But how do you think about the role of creativity within the science-led marketing world that you kind of see and push?
1: Well, you said it yourself, intuition. Intuition, I define as an accumulation of experiences throughout your entire life. You can call that knowledge. You can connect the dots. You don't know how you're doing it, but you know what the outcome is. Um, So that may be art in the end of the day. I'm a huge fan of creativity and i always believed in creativity, but let's just be frank, uh, Eric. Um, Creativity is dead. An advertising agency selling creativity is dead. And there's very few of them left. Because they've become prostitutes, they have sold out through data which quite often were blurry data for the sake of pleasing a client so they could wash their hands internally and justify a direction without being fired. That's quite often what happens, frankly speaking, because the campaigns are not working better than they did back then. In fact, they're working worse. Maybe we have a lot of data showing they work better, but I haven't seen any mind-blowing campaign. In fact, I've seen a lot of campaigns I never heard about before. So I think, in the end of the day, creativity is incredibly important, but it's struggling in our world. And it's struggling in our world for three reasons. The first reason is that the creative people developing creativity are not creative anymore. Um, they sit in front of the screens and they become incredibly linear and they're not inspired from from other sources. I tend to say that Creativity is to combine two ordinary things in a new way. Well, if you're sitting behind your screen or you're sitting in meeting rooms all the time and you're not getting your hands dirty, you lose those multiple perspectives. That's what small data is giving you. That means your creativity is collapsing. We saw that throughout COVID-19 where every single one of my creative friends went to a psychologist that broke down literally because they lost their creative juice. So that's number one. Number two is the client don't know how to buy creativity Uh, because it is so intangible, so difficult to understand and adopt. Um, And quite often, to be honest, creativity then requires uh, that you break rules, break the frame, Um, and that requires courage. That means it may be slightly politically incorrect. Maybe it offends someone. There's always been a saying in communication that if you didn't manage to offend anyone, it never worked. But well, we don't dare to offend anyone. So that's number two, which is, I think, problematic. And the third thing, I think, is that we've ended up in a world where people are using channels which are not lending itself to communicate creative ideas because the framework has been so squeezed that you literally don't have the right quality of eyeballs using the right media. I mean, very few people are still going to the cinema. Um, But you are seeing stupid banner ads or click ads or AdWords or God knows what you're seeing on TikTok. It's very, very difficult to be creative through these channels uh, with the increasing restrictions you have, all sorts of different ways. So the media formats are restricting you more and more. And you can't break the frame by using billboards or using a full page or using... As a 60-second TV commercial, now it's watered down. Now, that does not mean you can't be creative, but well, you probably can't be extraordinarily creative. And when you take these three factors, no output, no courage to buy it, and no chance to communicate it with, that's where creativity is, is having a crisis.
0: So, Martin, the last thing I want to get your thoughts on, you said in our prep call that marketing is not respected within organizations. So I'd love for you to expand on that and talk about the role of the CMO now. And I think for people listening, people in marketing, and they could probably relate to that comment, but people thinking about building their careers towards a CMO, what should they be focused on to be more respected in where you think the future of the CMO role should go?
1: You need to be able to talk two languages, not one. Um, you can talk marketing speak, advertising speak, communication speak, branding speak. That's fine. That's one language but you also need to be able to talk business speak. And those two walls should not blur together. Um, Business speak means that you can talk to the CEO in a sensible way, or you can talk to the head of R&D in a sensible way, or the head of HR in a sensible way, or the head of legal or compliance in a sensible way, and get them with you using their lingo, their language, so they feel comfortable about you knocking on their door. And then you should be able to talk the language of creatives, Um, which is a completely different language. And if you mix those two languages, either of the two audiences will roll their eyes and leave the room. Mm -hmm. So this is a very, very difficult thing. And that means that you you need to have a creative flair and protect what your fundamental views are on that, but you also really need to be a, a very savvy businessman. Remember, all the big founders of amazing companies and brands we know today were creative, and they managed to balance creativity with science or big data with small data. Take Walmart. I mean, Walmart installed a, (laughs) the founder installed a, a phone, a red phone in all his stores. So whenever customers had a question, they could pick up this red phone. And the staff, of course, hated it. But the phone was calling his office, and he would pick up the phone. It was an incredible creative way of reconnecting the organization with um, what matters, the customers. Um, IKEA is no difference. He reinvented the way we're looking at furniture still today, 50 years later. Um, So they were creative, but they managed to put a business flair on it and stay in focus. So the CMO's role is to talk two languages, not one. The CEO's role is A CMO's role is to ensure that you create a movement internally. You inspire people because you don't have any power as a CMO. You really don't have any power unless you have a special dedicated budget. But very few CMOs have that. Typically, you have a portfolio of brand managers which you are managing, which are sitting on the budget. And if you take their power away, well then they don't have a job. So. Your role is to inspire them, to take them in the right direction and to create synergies across the portfolio and ensure that this is not just a marketing play, but it's integrated with other divisions and functions and is waved into the culture and the organization. Very few CMOs really get it and are really good at it, I have to say. I met some, but a lot of people really are struggling with it, I have to say. And I think the third important thing for a CMO is to understand that you are the representative of the consumer of the customer, of the passenger, of the hotel guest, whatever business you're operating in. And once you are too good to represent their voice, meaning once you're too good to visit their homes or visit a store or visit a plant or whatever or wherever is going on, that stuff, then you're out of a job, in my mind. You have to be the one constantly reconnecting theory with reality and representing that voice in those meetings internally. And if you do that, then the organization will stay in tune because then you can talk the business language and make sure we align the whole organization. That's really, in the end of the day, the ultimate role you have, that everyone, everything else is really uh, the responsibility of other people which are typically reporting to you or people on your same line.
0: One of the things I think about is that good marketing and good marketers should make the companies they work for more customer-centric. So I think weaving together a lot of what we've talked about and uh, just building a little bit on how, you know, your advice for marketers out there building their careers, I think that's a great place to sum it up. So quickly, before we get to the lightning round, I realize I never actually asked you for a challenger brand. So is there one that you're particularly passionate about right now that you'd like to share?
1: Well, listen. Here's the problem. When I'm mentioning brands for you, they are completely unknown for you, and they're from some obscure country somewhere in the world where you have no idea about it. But I'll tell you, tell you about a category of brands which I admire a lot, coming out of India, which is brands managed and owned by the population, and where the population literally is buying a stake in that brand or producing it. That whole tradition started with uh, uh, in the bread business, where you would have thousands and thousands of housewives baking bread under a brand name, put them in a plastic bag and there'll be trucks picking them up every morning and they'll be sold in the supermarket. I love that. And those challenging brands, because a lot of them coming out of India now, which is both difficult to pronounce and difficult to understand, but those brands are challenging conventional players in the industry because they're going from outside in, because they're going from bottom up and because they are representing a tribal movement, just like Gandhi did back in the days, those are true challenger brands because the big brands are struggling a great deal getting a grip around them because these small brands have their passion in their heart with them. And you can discuss quite often if the bigger brands have.
0: So it's funny you say that because we actually had an editorial meeting this week and one of the things we talked about was trying to find some challenger brands in India and maybe doing a show where we get a couple of them just because I think a lot of people in this part of the world don't understand what's happening in that market and there are a lot of great examples. So great answer and uh, we might be hitting you up for some recommendations. So Martin, before I let you go, quick rapid fire rounds. Got a couple questions here for you. Can you tell us briefly about the biggest win that you've had recently, professionally?
1: I think the biggest win I had professionally was probably when Lego went from bankruptcy to become not just the largest toy company in the world, but one of the top, most valuable brands in the world. Not to say that I was the key reason why, because I wasn't, but probably I had a little bit of a role in that. And that happened through reconnecting the organization with the customer.
0: What about the biggest struggle that you're dealing with?
1: The biggest struggle I have is whenever I work in any industry, which have been around typically for 100 years, typically it's a listed company. Typically, they're working in a very heavy compliance-driven industry. And typically, people on average have been working in the organization for 25 years. And then I'm asked to make them customer focused. That's where I'll find the biggest struggles, I would say.
0: What about the best or some of the best marketing resources you found recently?
1: Oh, it's very simple consumers. I mean, as late as yesterday, I was in Denmark uh, doing ethnographic interviews with consumers across. The countryside of Denmark, last week, I was across four states in the United States, moving in with consumers there, and the week prior to that, I was in Saudi Arabia on a pilgrim to understand um, how certain religions are are migrating across the world. Um, so that's where that's my only hero. That is ordinary people. people like me would um have a heart and a soul and just want to make the world better.
0: What's the biggest lesson you've learned in your career?
1: Well, I think the biggest, there's many, uh, and I continue continue learning, I think the biggest lesson I've learned is that you have to always ask yourself, is what you're doing making a difference, or are you just doing it for making money? Making money is fine for a while, but it makes you awfully empty. But if you can create something which makes a true difference in everyone else's lives. That is much more valuable. It's something you tell your grandchildren. It's something which you're proud of. That is your legacy. No one, I talked I talk to Tom Peters about this, and he said, no one dies and on the thumbstone it said you earned $29.2 million. But I'm pretty sure we know, you and I know what it says on Gandhi's or Mother Teresa's thumbstone. Uh, if they're buried that way. And I think that's that's what I've learned. So don't lose sight of that fluffy currency, which we're all so seduced to, to get more of.
0: The last and most important question, what is one thing people should do differently after listening to this episode?
1: Oh, definitely it is for you to ask yourself, when did you last time talk to a random customer of yours, a person you've never spoken to before, in their home, or at their workplace for two hours just to understand their lives with no purpose of selling, just with the purpose of listening. If your answer is, I can't remember, it's, you better get your, your butt out of there into reality.
0: I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Martin, thank you so much for your time and this conversation really invaluable for me and I'm sure our audience really appreciate it. You're welcome, Eric. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.